Well, National Geographic features a story about the Arctic wolf. And in it, the author David Meck tells of an encounter that he saw with a seven-member wolf pack that approached a group of musk oxen. And there were a number of calves and 11 mature adults that were in this group. And as the wolves approached, the calves were herded into a tight little bunch, and the adults came around with their deadly rear hooves pointing out, and they formed an impenetrable circle. Now, Mech said he watched for several hours as the predators circled this group, and they were unable to penetrate to the calves in the middle. But at one point, one of the adult males uh, broke ranks, and he ran away. And as he did so, uh, there was a skirmish, and the, the group, the oxen, broke into several little groups and packs, and eventually uh, they all fled, and not a single one of the calves survived. Mech said, had the oxen stayed together, the wolves would not have been able to successfully attack. We're going through the book of Ephesians, and you'll recall that when we went through the book of Acts previous to this, we saw in Acts chapter 20 where the Apostle Paul told the elders in Ephesus, he said, when he leaves the church, he said, upon my departure, wolves will come in and seek to destroy the flock. And as we're looking in Ephesians chapter 6 today, we've seen that there is an enemy called Satan. He's been described as a roaring lion. We looked the week before Easter at many different names that he had, and we saw that he is an enemy seeking to destroy the church. And God warns us that even in our day, there are wolves that want to come in and destroy the flock. But as we've seen, God has not left us alone. He's given us what we need to fight our enemy, our foe called Satan. He's given us other believers to stand with us. And he's given us additional pieces of protection that we're going to be looking at today in Ephesians chapter 6 in verses 10 Through 15, last week we began looking at it, and I want to pick up in verse 13 today as we talk about the the things that God has given us to fight our foe. He says in Ephesians 6.13 and following, Therefore take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith uh, with which you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We began looking at this passage last time. I showed you this picture of a, a Roman soldier and the armor that he wore. And you'll recall that as Paul is writing this letter, he's in prison. He's chained to a Roman soldier awaiting uh, the possibility of death for his faith. So he was able to look over and and have a visual illustration here of the protection that the soldiers in that day had, and God led him to use this as an image. He, He begins by telling us in this section of Scripture, gird up your loins with truth. Now, when we gird our loins with truth, it doesn't mean just knowing the truth, but it means being prepared to use it. In the scriptures, this is an image that is repeated several times of, of being ready to move quickly. You'll recall in, in the Exodus, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 11, as the Israelites ate the Passover, as they were preparing to be set free from bondage in Egypt, God told them to eat the meal with their, their loins girded. Uh, Jesus tells us in Luke 12:35 to gird our loins, being ready for the return of Jesus Christ. And in 1 Peter 1.13, we're told to gird our minds for action. 
You know, in our day, we wear clothing with buttons and zippers and ties and all these type of things. So we have form-fitting clothing. But in Paul's day, uh, the, the typical person wore a big square of cloth, a, a tunic. You've seen Roman togas where you take a sheet and kind of wrap it around yourself. And so that was a poor piece of uh, battle attire. Because if you had this loose flowing uh, garment around you, when you went into battle, it would be easy for the enemy to have something to grab onto. It could get uh, entangled in your feet and, and knock you over. It could be something where you would get caught or hung on uh, some of the battlements and things around. So what they would do is they would gird up their loins. Now, I mean, we don't understand this as much as ladies would, but if you have a long flowing type of dress, what they would do is they would, they would gather up the extra cloth, they'd pull it up between their legs, and they would tuck it in their belt. That's what the picture is here, where it says gird up your, your loins. You're, you're, you're tucking this in to this, this middle thing called a belt of truth. Now, when it comes to this, 2 Timothy 2.4 tells us no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. So this picture of being entangled, tripping over uh, the cares and the things of this world, John MacArthur puts it this way in his commentary on that passage. He says it's sad that so many Christians let the tunics of their daily cares and concerns flap in the breeze around them, continually interfering with their faithfulness to the Lord and giving the devil every opportunity to entangle and defeat them with our own immature habits and interests. So when we're not properly prepared, we can be distracted by things. When we're tempted, we can trip over the snares that our enemy, Satan, has placed for us. We talked last time on the Sunday before Easter as we looked at this passage of how Satan uh, tempts us and how he twists the truth. He likes to come in and, and, and subtly change what God's word has said. You can read Matthew chapter 4, and in it you'll recall that as Jesus Christ was taken into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, it, the way that Satan tried to attack the Lord was by quoting scripture. And as you read the passage, what you'll see is Satan would take it out of context or he would change it. Now, he was talking to the Lord himself, the one who, who is called the Word in John 1.1. Jesus Christ is the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word is God. And the Holy Spirit is the author of the written Word. So as Satan came and he was, he was counterfeiting the truth, you'll read how each time he misquoted it or took it out of context, Jesus correctly applied it and he was able to defeat the enemy. And this is why the belt of truth is so foundational for us as Christians. When we know the truth, we can see these, these subtle twistings of the truth. An example of counterfeit Christianity is Mormonism. If I were to ask you this morning, are Mormons believers? I'm sure there would be some here this morning who would say, yeah, they're Christians. I mean, you drive by, past their, their wards, it says the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They will tell you we believe Jesus is the Son of God. They'll say we believe in the Bible uh, as being the Word of God. But what they tell you on the surface and what they appear, Mormons are, are typically very uh, great citizens. They're, they're family-oriented. They, they look more like believers than some of us do. But what they have at the foundation below the surface is different than our foundation. For instance, John 3.16 tells us in the Bible, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That word only begotten is the Greek word monogenes. And that word means literally a unique 
one, one-of-a-kind God-man. There is only one person who has ever existed who was fully God and fully man, and that is Jesus Christ. He is the only begotten, the monogenate son of God. Now, a Mormon will tell you that we can become a son of God, become God just as Jesus Christ was. If you uh, look at what was taught by Joseph Smith, the one who started Mormonism, he says in the Journal of Discourses in uh, chapter 6, verse 4, here then is eternal life to know the only wise and true God, and you have got to learn how to be gods yourself, big G. You have got to learn how to be gods yourself and to be kings and priests to God, the same as all gods have done before you. Brigham Young, the second prophet and president of the Mormon church, delivered a message at the Salt Lake City Tabernacle on August 8th, 1852. And in the Journal of Discourses, chapter 3, verse 93, he affirms this teaching. And he said, the Lord created you and me for the purpose of becoming gods, big G, like himself. Do you see what Mormonism does? It appears on the surface to say the same thing as we do. It uses the same words, but it has a whole different foundational meaning. They say they believe in the Bible. And yet, as you delve into Mormonism and its teaching, they say, we believe the Bible as far as it is correctly translated. Well, that opens the door, doesn't it? And as you read the Mormon form of our Bible, you will find they have changed verses and they have added verses. And not only have they done that to what we call the Bible, but they have added additional works in, like the Book of Mormon, which is subtitled Another Testament of Jesus Christ. And beyond that, there's Doctrines and Covenants, there's the Pearl of the Great Price, they have prophets today who they believe are still receiving revelation that is at the same level and supersedes God's previous revelation. It is counterfeit Christianity. They're wonderful, fine people, but they're lost because they do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as the only way to heaven. The way that the treasury agents are taught to determine a counterfeit bill is they don't put them in a school and say, we're going to show you all the fake bills that have ever been made and we want you to study the mistakes. What they do is they give them the real deal. And they say, we want you to know this so well, the feel of it, the smell of it, all the security features, that when a counterfeit bill is put into a treasury agent's hand, they're immediately able to say, this is not a real bill. And that's what God calls on us as believers to do, is to know the word so well, to have that belt of truth that girds our minds, to have it in our lives, so that when counterfeit is presented to us, we're able, as Christ did with Satan, to say, no, 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 that's not what the scripture says, or that's not how it applies. And this is the way that we as believers are able to stand firm against the attacks of our enemy. The next piece of armor that's mentioned is the breastplate of righteousness. Um, there's a far side cartoon that you've possibly seen that shows two bucks standing in the woods, and they're talking. As these two deer are sitting there, the one guy says, hey, bummer of a birthmark, Hal. <laughs> I mean, how would you like to be that, that deer with that, that bullseye right there on your chest, right? Bummer of a birthmark. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have a birthmark. When we become born-again believers, we get a target on our chest. And our enemy, Satan, says, you are now a danger to me. You are now a danger to what I'm trying to do in the world where I deceive people. And so we have this birthmark, we have a target. And what God says is, I've given you a breastplate to protect you. A Roman soldier wore a breastplate that covered his heart 
in its vital organs. And the same thing has been given to us as Christians. When I was a policeman uh, in Dallas, when, when I was given a, a ballistic vest, a bulletproof vest, they didn't just say, hey, uh, go over there and pick something out of that big pile of vests and find one that kind of fits you. What they did is they sent you to the quartermaster. And they came in and a seamstress measured every part of you, chest and stomach and underarm and all this. And my measurements were a lot different in that day than they are today, right? And so they would custom make the vest to fit you because they said it is essential that it covers, gives you full protection. And it was the same thing with a Roman soldier. They were, they were custom-made breastplates that fit the individual soldier. And when it comes to us, God says, I have custom made your breastplate of righteousness. It's not anything that you did in and of yourselves. I did it for you. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, for by grace you've been saved by faith, that it is not as a result of works so that no one should boast. He says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. God says, I made it for you. I gave it to you. I put it on you. You see, there is a day coming, the scripture says, where Satan goes before the Lord and he accuses us. Remember, we talked about our enemy and one of his names is the slanderer. And he, he loves to go before the Lord and say, do you know what so-and-so did? They say they're a Christian and, and, you know, they don't deserve to be here in heaven. I mean, imagine you're there in heaven and, and he walks up and he says, well, God, I've got this whole long list of things that so-and-so did. And he stands there with me, and he goes, well, there's Roger. The guy's a pastor. Let me tell you what he did. Now, we don't have time for that, so I'm going to have to just keep moving here. <laughs> but what he does is he sits there, and he accuses us. Now, the Bible says Jesus Christ is our advocate. That's a word that means an attorney. So we have the prosecuting attorney, Satan, who is there saying, you don't belong here. And Jesus Christ stands, and he says, I'm going to represent Roger and the rest of you who are believers. And Jesus doesn't come with some legal technicality. He doesn't try to get evidence thrown out. What he does is Satan reads the charges. He goes, yep, he did that, that too, mm -hmm, five times on that one. And he says, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. And we're standing there going, uh, can I have a different lawyer? But then what Jesus Christ does is he says, see my hands. See the holes where the, nears, the nails pierced my palms. Look at my feet where the spikes were driven through. Look at the hole in my side. He says, I died for Roger, and I died for the rest who are here. Roger is guilty. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life, Romans 6.23 says. Jesus says, Roger and the rest of us are guilty of sin. We are guilty and cannot stand in the presence of a holy God if it were based upon what we did. But then he said, what I did is I covered you in my blood. I washed away your sins. I've put the robe of righteousness upon you, and that's why you are welcome in heaven. And then he turns to our enemy, Satan, and he says, be gone. The penalty has been paid in full. As we celebrated last Sunday at Easter, when Jesus rose from the dead and showed he conquered sin and death. And so this is what, what Satan does. It's one of the ways he tries to attack us, but God has given us what we need. If you've never received God's gift of eternal life, I invite you to do that. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you shall be saved. It's not based upon the works you did or that I do. It's based upon the grace of God and the work that he did for us. Now, we talked last time about what the gospel is. The word literally means the good news, and that's what the gospel is. Jesus died in your place and mine, and he, he, he conquered sin and death for us. 
And we saw that as, as believers, we have been given, it says we are to shod our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And we talked about these shoes that the Roman soldier wore. They were called the caliga. And they were strapped on. They were tied on. They were firmly attached. There was that thick leather sole. And you see the spikes, the metal studs that were there to give them a firm foundation. And this is a part of the armor we've been given. And we talked about how armor is an awkward apparel for an armchair. You don't armor up and try to sit down and be comfortable. We haven't been saved to sit. We've been saved to go out and share the good news of the gospel. And this is the picture here. In verse 16, we're told, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now, the Greek word for shield here is also used to describe a door. Because the shields that the Romans carried, the big battle shields, were about four feet tall, two and a half feet wide. Here's a picture of some recreated shields that the Roman soldiers would carry. And, and you can see they're like a door. You can stand behind this and have this full protection. And one of the ways the soldiers would fight is they would stand together as if they were caught in an open field or there was a, a cavalry charge or something. They would plant these shields, put their pikes out, and they would stand together and they were able to, uh, to have protection. Another thing that they would do that's not shown in this picture is when they were going against a fortified position where they knew they were going to be pouring burning oil or raining fiery darts down on them, they would cover their shields in leather that were, and then they would soak that in water. So when these darts would hit the shield, uh, it would extinguish them. And this is the picture we're given here. And the fiery image uh, that Satan uses as he attacks us are things such as burning lust, a blazing temper, and fiery trials. Another way that he, he tries to attack us is to create doubt in our minds. Do you really believe God exists? Do you believe that's his word? Do you think God loves you? I mean, come on. In those times, Satan says, look at your life. Look at the mess you've made. How, how can God use you? You know, if the people sitting around you this morning, these good, pretty church people, knew who you were and what you did, they wouldn't want anything to do with you, right? No. In those times where Satan says those things to us, what God says is, protect your mind from doubt. Pick up that shield of faith that I've given you and extinguish the enemy. Gird yourself with the belt of truth. Say to our enemy, Satan, you know, I've got the foundation of the word of God. And you know what he tells me in, in Romans 5, 8? It says he demonstrated his own love for me in this. While I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. Yes, God loves me. God loves me like I am, broken and all the mess I've made in my life. Now, he also loves me too much to leave me like I am. But if you think God doesn't want anything to do with me because of my past, uh, just remind Satan, as he reminds you of your past, remind him of his future, okay? Let him know that he's a defeated enemy. He lost at the cross, and his day of judgment is, is assured. We're to come with Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When he's condemning you, say, I'm believing the word, the foundation. Read through all the way to the end. He gets into verses 38 and 39, and he says, nothing can separate us from the love of God. He says, neither height nor depth nor, nor angels or principalities nor any created thing. That includes you and me. He says, we've been placed in the nail-scarred hands of Jesus Christ in John 10, 27 uh, through 29. And he says, the Father's closed it around. And he says, I paid too high a price for you. I won't let you go. That's the belt of truth. That's what it does for us in those times where our enemy attacks us. 
whether it's doubts or discouragements or the trials or the things that are in our life that he comes at us, we come back at him with the truth of God's word. And there's times where you say, but I can't even see beyond the, the next step because it's so dark. Those are the times where you turn to the Bible that says, thy word is a light unto my feet. He gives us just what we need sometimes for the very next step. During the terrible days of the, the Blitzkrieg, when London was under attack from Germany, when they would send in the rockets and they would have bombing runs and set the city on fire, there was a father with his young son who was in an apartment building. And as they were there and the bombs fell and hit his building, uh, it set the building on fire and, and the father was inside and he knew they had to get out. Uh, so he grabbed his young son. They ran out in, through the courtyard area. The bombs were still falling. Buildings were on fire all around. And, and the father's like, we need to find shelter immediately. Well, there was a, a huge crater in this courtyard where another bomb had exploded. And the father ran up to the edge of the hole and he put his son right by the edge and he leaped into the darkness. And as he hit the bottom and he got up and he turned, uh, he, he looks up to the edge of the crater and he can see his, his son up there with the building burning behind. His son is backlit. And he says to his son, jump. And this, this terrified little boy is staring into the darkness. And he says, Daddy, I can't see you. And his father says, but I can see you, jump. And the little boy, having faith in his father, jumped into the darkness and he was caught safely in his father's arms. Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And in those times where the bombs are falling all around, as the enemy is attacking you, as there's darkness and chaos and you're staring into what looks like a, a dark hole and you're saying, God, I can't see you. God says, I can see you. Trust me. And when we leap into his arms, we're caught safely. This is one of the things that God, as we talked about last time, where we can have faith in the midst of a storm, even when death comes, because even when we can't see everything, we have the certainty that we are seen by our Heavenly Father. You know, in this world, we're never going to have all the answers, but we can know God loves us enough. In those times where you doubt, does he love you? He says, I don't love you this much or this much, friends. I love you this much. When he spread his arms wide, he died on the cross. And those arms are still open to you today. And he's inviting you to leap into them, to come to faith. Now, another way that Satan seeks to disable Christians is, is and to take us out of the fight is through something called friendly fire. Those who are in the military know about this. It's, a, it's where somebody who's on your side uh, wounds or, or, or takes you out of the fight. And, and Satan loves to do this. He, he wants to get us as Christians to fight one another. And sometimes we're really good at doing that. Friends, if you want to fight somebody, don't fight the family of God. Fight our foe called Satan. Verse 12 tells us our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the demonic forces. When I was in the police department, you, you know, I would, I would have to stand on a riot line sometimes. And as you think of that shield we were looking at, do you know there's, there's something missing when it comes to protecting you? Did you notice that? There's, there's, there's nothing in the back. Those shields are only designed to protect you from the front. And the reason for that is you're to stand shoulder to shoulder, side by side with other people. You don't worry about the attack from behind because that's where the friendly folks are supposed to be. And so as Christians, we're not to shoot each other in the back. We're not to, to shoot the wounded. We're to come and stand and support one another. 
Now, when it comes to these shields and the way they would stand and support each other, uh, this is a, a Roman battle technique that was called a testudo. And it's a word that literally means a tortoise. And you see it's a picture of a turtle shell. And what they would do is they would take these shields and they could stand side by side and even cover each other from above. And this is how they would approach a fortified position where rocks and arrows and other things were raining down upon them. As they stood together, uh, they were able to support each other. And it's, it's things that we've learned in our day as well. As you, you know, I mentioned these riot lines where police are sometimes facing these, these huge hostile situations. Here's, here's a picture of one where uh, the police are in a, in a desperate situation. And does that look familiar to you? It's a testudo. You know, we've, we've taken things from 2,000 years ago, tactics and armor and things like that, and applied it in our day in the secular context. So why don't we do that as believers where God has said to us, I've given you something to protect you. I've given you what you need to fight the battle in this day. You see, don't, don't let our enemy uh, enlist you on his side. Don't fight the family of God. Fight the foe. Now, am I saying there's never a time that we should confront a Christian? That there's never a time we should say you're in error or there's some sin in your life that's creating damage or disunity? No, absolutely, there are times to do that. But when we do, we need to do a number of things. First, we need to figure out, uh, is, this, is this an issue that we should be dealing with? The Bible tells us, don't go after the speck in your brother's eye to take the log out of your own. That doesn't mean that we don't go after sin in somebody's life. It just says, make sure you've, you've taken care of your own business first. Uh, it tells us in Galatians 6.1, you who are spiritual, restore another in a spirit of gentleness. See, you don't come with a flamethrower. You come in love. And as you come, you don't attack the person, you attack the issue. The Gospel of Matthew in chapter 18 tells us when somebody is in sin, you go to the individual. You don't go to your friends and talk about them. You go to the person. And you say, hey, I love you enough to say there's something going on in your life I need to talk to you about. And if the person doesn't listen to you, then you gather some other spiritual believers to go with you, a few. And if that doesn't work, then you go to the leaders and you say, we need to take it to the church and you, you raise the level. But again, God's goal and discipline is always restoration, not punitive. It's always to win the other one back uh, to the faith. And when you debate or fight an issue, make sure it's a major issue that's worth fighting over. It's not personal preference. It's not your likes or dislikes. It's, is this a core foundational belief? Now, verse 17 says to take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This word translated as take is the Greek word dekomai. And it literally means to receive as in welcoming. Have you ever opened the door of your house and said to a friend, hey, come on in. You're receiving them into your home. You're welcoming them. You're saying, sit down at the table, have fellowship. Uh, you're welcome here. You're like family. When we receive the Lord, that's what we're doing. We're welcoming him into the home of our heart. We're accepting him. John 1.12 says, but as many as received him, Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Uh, so if you haven't taken that final step of faith, again, I invite you to do so. It's not based upon how good you are. It's not based upon how many times you've come to church. There are some people here this morning that said, you know, I came to church last Easter, and, 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 I, and I'm here for the second time in a row. I'm two for two. And we welcome you. We are so glad you're back. There are others of you who say, hey, Roger, I'm 50 for 50 or I'm 100 for 100. 
that's wonderful, but it doesn't mean that you're getting into heaven by your, your attendance or how much you've put in the offering plate or how good you've been. Again, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one should boast. As Paul has already told us in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it is that breastplate of righteousness that is being washed in the blood of the lamb that has taken our sins away. The final piece of equipment we've given here is the sword of the spirit. This is the word of God. This is the only offensive weapon in all of the armor that is mentioned. Hebrews 4.12 tells us, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Some of you here have participated in sword drills. Right? If you go to Awana or you're in Sunday school, the teachers will say, okay, get your sword out, and everybody gets their Bible. And they go, okay, okay, uh, book of Ecclesiastes. And some go, Shh. and others are going, what? Is that past second hesitations? I mean, where's Ecclesiastes? Is that in the Bible? And what God says is we're to know the word. In those times where the temptation comes, where the doubts come, uh, we don't always have time uh, to call the pastor and say, hey, uh, where in the Bible is such and such? Or Google the thing. And those are great things to do at times. But he says we're to, ha know the, to have that belt of truth, to, to know the word. You know, if you've been in the military, you know that you do sword drills with your weapon, right? And that's what this is. This is our weapon. You go through basic training. They present you your, your weapon, and they say, this is your friend. You're going to eat with it. You're going to sleep with it. You're going to, you know... And you, you, you have to be able to take that thing apart in the night, and you have to be able to just assemble and deassemble it and, and do all the things. It was the same thing in the police department. You know, when you were in, in the midst of a situation and you had your semi-automatic pistol and it jammed, you couldn't go, now, what was that supposed to do? You remember, tap, rack, bang. You know, if you've got a stovepipe shell coming out, you've got to clear your gun. You've got to be back in the fight. And it's the same thing here with us. We have to know the word. We have to be able to counter the attacks of the enemy. He's given us the sword of the spirit. Now, when he writes about it here, he says it's to be taken out of the sheath and shared. Uh, the Greek word that is used here is rhema. And it's a far-reaching word. It, it, it applies not just to the written word, the biblical form of it, but it also refers to the spoken word. And what Paul is saying is it's not enough just to know it. We have to share it. We're told, how can they come to faith if they don't have a preacher, somebody to share the word? And, and this is what Paul is, is talking about uh, in verses 18 through 20. He says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in mind, with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterances may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. You see, Paul says, I need to share the word. You know, in modern warfare, commanders say, when we take a battle uh, to the enemy, the first thing we want to do is establish air superiority, right? You take out command and control, you take control of the skies, and then you say, we have the upper hand. And we've seen that our enemy, last time we talked about how he's the prince of the power of the air. And, uh, and we're not struggling against flesh and blood. We have this, this evil minion army that we're fighting against, the demonic thing. But Christ has defeated them. 
And if we get to call in air superiority, close air support through prayer, we get to, to say to God in heaven, we need your help. And as Paul is calling in uh, the prayers of the saints here, you know, it's interesting. He's not saying, would you pray that I would be released from prison? Is that what you read? He says, would you pray that while I'm here in prison, that I'm faithful, that I share the good news of the gospel, that I talk to the Roman soldiers, that I talk to the fellow prisoners. Would you pray that I would have boldness and, and, and do what I'm asking you to do to share the good news of the gospel? When is the last time that you've shared your faith personally? When is the last time that you can say, I sat down with somebody and I talked to them and I, and I shared my faith? In, in the first service, we had the privilege of baptizing four people. And it was a wonderful story. I, I, I got to share it in the first service, but it started with a nine-year-old girl who came to my office last week who said, I'm ready to be baptized. And as I talked to her, uh, I heard that she had come to faith through her 14-year-old sister who had been sharing her faith with her. And the mom had been at work and doing those type of things, and, and the family had come with them. And before it was, there was a, a, an aunt in the room, and there was a boyfriend of the aunt and the others, and the, the boyfriend who was there, a young man, didn't yet know the Lord, and he came to faith in my office. And, and the other three in the family figured out, we've never been baptized as believers, and we, we had the privilege of baptizing four of them this morning. In this one. And it started with somebody sharing their faith. A 14-year-old with a 9-year-old sister and a 20-something-year-old man came to faith through this. And you, you see what happens when you're sharing your faith. And, and do we have that boldness? Are we those who are saying, I'm willing to take a step? I'm willing to share at home or at school or at work with those around me. We assume everybody around us is saved. Friends, they're not. And Paul says, would we be bold in sharing our faith? He says, pray for me that I would do that. Are you praying for boldness for yourself? Are you praying for boldness for others? This, this idea of close air support is something we get to provide for each other and for missionaries. Last week, we introduced to you um, or one of our missionaries from Tibet, a very dark and difficult mission field. We have another missionary uh, here with us right now on furlough from, from Thailand. These are, these are areas where the good news of the gospel is having to penetrate into hard and difficult situations. And are we those who are praying for those, those fellow missionaries, standing with them shoulder to shoulder? You don't have to be physically present to do it. You can pray for, for friends who are away at college. You can pray for coworkers and others when they're struggling. Sometimes you don't get to sit with them physically, but you can support them, stand shoulder to shoulder, and, uh, and support them through prayer. And this is what Paul is calling on us to do. In those times where we're facing an overwhelming situation or fear the foe that we're facing, God says, pray. You know, the man or woman who kneels in prayer will be able to stand up to anything. And if you're facing those tough times in your life, God says, get down on your knees and fight. Pray and ask me to help you. Last time we saw how we're, we were told three different times to stand firm. And here he says, we're to stand with those who are in the battle by praying for all the saints. I want to end with this illustration from Elmer, um, Elmer Bindiner's book. It was called The Fall of the Fortress. And he was part of a B-17 crew. And he talked about how uh, he was on a bombing run over a German city called Kassel. 
And he said, as we were coming over the city, it was like most runs, the, the, the Nazi anti-aircraft fire was intense and the sky opened up with black. And he said, on this particular run, uh, it was very intense. And he said, um, our plane was hit. And he said, what, what was interesting is it was our gas tank that got hit. And he said, later as I reflected on the miracle of a 20 millimeter shell piercing the fuel tank without touching off an explosion, he said, I was amazed by it. Now, they landed safely, and his pilot was named uh, Bon Fox. And, and Bon said, I want, I want that shell as a, as a souvenir of our luck. And so he went to the crew chief, and he, and he asked for that shell as a souvenir. And the crew chief told him, well, you, you have to go over to the uh, armors because they had to be sent there to be diffused. These, these shells, you know, had, had explosives in them. And he said, oh, by the way, it, it wasn't just one shell. There were actually 11 that pierced the gas tank. He said 11 unexploded shells. He said only one was sufficient to have blasted our plane out of the sky. It was as if the sea had been parted for us. He says, even after 35 years, so awesome of an event leaves me shaken, especially when I heard the rest of the story. You see, when, uh, when Fox went to get the shell from the armors to be diffused, they told him that the intelligence people had come and picked them up. They couldn't say why at the time, but Bond eventually sought out the answer. And he said, apparently when the armors opened up each of the shells, they found that there were no explosive charges in any of them. They were as clean as a whistle and just as harmless. He says, empty? Well, all but one. One contained a carefully rolled up piece of paper, and on it was written a note in Czech. So the intelligence people scoured our base for a man who could read Czech, and eventually they found one to decipher the note, and it set us marveling, because translated, the note said, this is all we can do for you now. This is all we can do for you now. You see, there were people in a munitions factory somewhere in Czechoslovakia who were manufacturing these, these shells, and they were purposely sabotaging the shells. They were not loading them with explosives or dummy charges and different things. They were far off. They were on scene. They had no idea if what they were doing was really going to have any effect. And here was a bomber and, and its entire crew that were saved by the work of these people who said, this is all we can do for you for now. And some of you may be sitting here this morning and you're listening to this and you're saying, Roger, I want to get in the fight. But maybe you're a, you're a new believer. Maybe you're like this man, Alonzo, that I mentioned a moment ago that has only been a believer for a few days. And he's saying, I'm not yet equipped. I barely uh, even know what a Bible is. I'm, I'm, I'm learning. I'm growing in my faith. And maybe you're sitting here today saying, I'm not very mature and I, I'm not ready to stand on the front lines. Or it could be you're on the other end where you're saying, you know, Roger, I'm old. And I'm at the end of my run, and I can't, I can't do the things I used to do. I can't get out there and evangelize, and I can't talk to people, or I'm bedridden, and I'm, I, I have limitations. Can you pray? Are you, are you somebody who's saying, that's all I can do for now, all I can do is pray? Friends, do you realize that is the most powerful weapon that we have, is prayer? Because when we work, we work, but when we pray, God works. And we plug into his power. And he calls on us to stand shoulder to shoulder with missionaries, with other saints, to encourage one another, to, to be those who are part of the unseen powerhouse of what happened. It is prayer. 
It's prayer that invites God into the work and allows us. Earlier in worship, Brian started to pray the Lord's Prayer, and he said, not my will be done, but thy will be done. And we, we, we sometimes sing prayers about getting our will done here and, and prayers about getting God's will in heaven done here on earth. Can you pray? That's one of the weapons God has given us, and he calls on us to do it. Will you join me, please, as we go to the Lord in prayer now? Lord God, we thank you for your word. Your word that points us to you, Jesus Christ, the one who is called the living word. In John 1, 1, we're told in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Lord Jesus, we want people to know who you are. We want people to be able to discern uh, the counterfeit Christianity of Mormonism and, and Islam and all that the world offers. Father, you're not just a great prophet. You're not just a moral man. You are who you said you are, Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here today who doesn't yet know your son personally, that they would receive you. They would invite you into their heart and they would receive that gift of new life. And Lord, for the rest of us who have received that gift, I pray that we would avail ourselves of what you've offered to us, your power and your protection, your provision to face and fight our foe in this world and to stand in the midst of hard things. Father, would you use us in ways that would glorify you? Father, as we end our time, we know there are people here with heavy hearts and, and needs. There will be prayer leaders at the front to stand with them and pray with them and invite people to come and do that. And Lord, would you make us men and women, people of prayer, as we leave here today. Lord, thank you for loving us. Thank you for using us letting us be a part of, of your family. Would you use us in ways that would glorify yourself? We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ.